This is the Christian Heritage London podcast from London. Well, it's an absolute delight for me to be talking with Bill Edgar, the uh, professor. Or Are you em- emeritus professor now, Bill? I am emeritus as of July. Uh-huh. At Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia. But uh, as we discussed previously on the Christian Heritage London podcast, you're someone who's lived in a, in a handful of, of nations. Uh, you, you've spent your time in France. Uh, where else? Well, I grew up in France. I haven't actually lived anywhere else except uh, the U.S., but I've, I've traveled extensively. But I grew up in Paris and worked in Aix-en-Provence for over a decade. Excellent. Well, you've written this book about which I'd like to talk with you, this uh, excellent book, A Supreme Love. And in this book, you make the point that on it's a, it's a historic point. On June the 19th, 1865, the Confederate forces, having surrendered, the Union soldiers arrived in Galveston, Texas, spreading the good news of the end of the American Civil War. The date, some two and a half years after official emancipation, became a metaphor for the newly minted freedom declared but unrealized. General Order No. 3 is a moving piece of legislation. And then you quote, The people of Texas are informed that in accordance with a proclamation from the executive of the United States, all slaves are free. This involves an absolute equality of rights and rights of property between former masters and slaves, and the connection heretofore existing between them becomes that between employer and hired laborer. You then go on to quote the writer Ralph Ellison, who writes that, But what a feeling can come over a man just from seeing the things he believes in and hopes for, symbolized in the concrete form of a man in something that gives a focus to all the other things he knows to be real, something that makes unseen things manifest and allows him to come to his hopes and dreams through his outer eye and through the touch and feel of his natural hand. And you then comment Ralph Ellison's posthumous novel, Juneteenth, which included that quote, contains many of the great poet's thoughts about life and music. Jazz was, for him, the embodiment of what it means to be human. So having discussed massive facts of history, extraordinary variables of the human condition and experience, you come down on that fascinating factor, the subject of jazz, the spontaneous, the improvisatory art form, the modern art form, which you argue has come out of a very historic moment and which speaks of freedom, speaks of incarceration, speaks of joy in pain. How is it that you came first to be interested in jazz, Bill? Oh, Ben, that's a great question. I grew up with it. Um, I was uh, blessed enough to be in a family that loved jazz. Uh, my, mo- my I don't think this is in the book, but my mother had two requirements for her boys because we, uh, we came from a little seaside town. One is that they learn how to swim as fast as possible, and the two is that they could dance. And uh, so we used to clear the uh, furniture out and she would show us how to do the Charleston and other dances. Um, And my dad had an extensive jazz collection, which I grew up on. And then I started my own collecting. And eventually, uh, well, I took to the piano quite early on and um, eventually started a a little group and it developed into a jazz band. And I, you know, the, the band has been, 
tremendously fulfilling. We've, we've traveled extensively, particularly in Eastern Europe and a bit in the UK. That's where I met, met you, I think. Yes. So jazz has been a part of my, my life, my spirit, my soul, my raison d'etre. <laughs> and I've spent much of my adult life studying its nature and its history. There's lots more to, to, to go, but um, I'm getting on in years, so <laughs> we'll see what happens. <laughs> it is fascinating, reading the book, how very much rooted in history the story of jazz is and how right. unique it is as an art form. It's uh, fascinating to me. I, I frequently give people tours in the British Museum. And, of course, when you look at the ancient art and then you see the Renaissance, you see, well, the Renaissance was wonderful, but it was a rebirth of something that happened before. But in jazz, we see something almost, uh, almost unique. I think that's right. Um, it's not a rebirth of anything, strictly speaking. Although, of course, there are elements of European music, African rhythms, and other sources like popular music, work songs, and so on. Mm. But um, they all came together in, and converged into a very unique form of music. No one quite understands how it happened. It's a bit like a miracle, you know. But um, in the early 20th century, it came together. And it became jazz. One of the things that you talk about in the book is the whole factor of stories. And you mentioned an anecdote of how two trumpeters go to hear the uh, young trumpeter Roy Eldridge as he was young. And you mentioned how the younger trumpeter was very impressed with Eldridge's technique. But the older trumpeter said, yes, but he doesn't know how to tell a story yet. Now, the thing is, what's fascinating is uh, as a jazz, uh, someone who enjoys jazz as I do, and as you play it, you know what you mean by that. And I remember reading the liner notes of a a, a, a record um, about the music of Schubert and being quite moved because the man started to talk about Schubert's enjoyment of contemplation of eternity. And I'm thinking, how, how does he also see that? in Schubert, who was writing music without words for that, for that particular record. But we know something of, of, a, of these things which, which don't have words, but we recognize them. Now, you haven't, you haven't explored this necessarily as a Christian subject, but then you say secular. What is secular if the whole world is owned by God? What, right. You've pioneered in this subject, although you, you, you reference people like Rookmarker. You, have, you see it uniquely. Is this something which you discussed at Labrie when you were with Schaefer? Um, I don't remember discuss- – well, I remember discussing jazz very much, and Rookmarker was involved in, in our life, um, a kind of a mentor and friend, and we went to listen to music together. But I don't remember uh, evoking the subject of story. I think that's come later in my – uh, experience. Um, and it's a little bit elusive. You know, what I mean is the ability to move, this is very simple, but, uh, from a beginning to a middle back to home, back to the beginning, uh, with, um, creative tensions and, and rabbit trails and, and so on, but always united, uh, in a particular tale. Mm. And, uh, most of the music that I enjoy most does that, uh, you know, Duke Ellington, it, to the untrained ear, might be a lot of random, loud sounds. But actually, he was a master storyteller mm. because he, he kept to his themes. The musicians improvised, to be sure, but they did it 
by respecting one another and listening to one another, and as we call it in jazz, riffing off one another. So the, it, the best of the music is never far from some central story. Hmm. This is fascinating because you're describing something which the, I'm presently reading 2 Corinthians in the morning, and we see this fascinating idea of the, the life in the spirit, and the, 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 Paul's making comparisons between uh, treasure in glass, uh, in, in jars of clay, and living by faith and not by sight. And in jazz, we have this, this art form which, wherein you have spontaneity, but in the context of a structure, you have freedom. But freedom doesn't spontaneity doesn't always lead to freedom. Now these are very these are very scriptural categories, and yet yeah, absolutely, it, it it leads you to to the kinds of questions which only the gospel answers. And you you mentioned talking to Dave Brubeck on one occasion, and he said, "Yeah, yeah, my my music is is I've written more sacred than anything else." The Bible is a, a massive story. You don't want to make that sound uh, you know kind of childish, but um, it is. It has a beginning, a middle, and an end. The middle is full of ambiguity and suffering, as well as some strands of hope. But the end is is a glorious hope. And I think the best of jazz has these qualities to it. Not every uh, part of the story is in one piece, but you know, jazz typically begins with a theme. We call it the head, and then it starts to develop this theme in all kinds of ways. And some ways are very uh, tense and full of friction, but they they always resolve. And in the end, um, you go back to the head, having had this wonderful journey uh, where the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. The the pieces fit together in a way they hadn't before. So, yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And, you know, the two errors... Uh, that I think you find in some music. One is so to concentrate on the uh, ambiguities of the middle uh, that you lose hope. And the other is the opposite. Uh, so to concentrate on the happy ending that you you don't have tension. <laughs> and I think jazz, best the best of jazz does both. That's fascinating. And so you see uh, that probably possibly one of the high points would have been kind of blue where you have that you have that extraordinary tension, but you also have the extraordinary lyrical beauty and the happy endings. You feel where are they? You know they're coming, but you don't want it to stop. <laughs> very good. Yeah, that's one of my favorite albums, and uh, yeah, that's that's very profound. Now it's a bit like your Schubert. His music is like that, whether with words or not. And uh, all great music has this quality. Uh, perhaps Bach is the s- superb example of it. Uh, but then there's music that airs on the side of either overstressing the darkness or overstressing the happy ending without going through the valley of the shadow of death. Um, so anyway, the best of jazz is, is a great story. Um, yes. And that's one of the reasons I love it so much. Yeah. Now, you dwell so long on the history. Could you give our listeners an introduction to what it is that you, that you, uh, you consider in the book from the historical perspective of a of how this extraordinary art form began and developed? Yeah, I'll I'll try. Um, The evolution of jazz comes out of the experience of slavery. Now, there were precedents in Africa to to good music that wasn't representative of of slavery, but the bulk of it comes from 
the enslaved Africans who, with I, I explain this in the book, developed a hope many times because of the gospel. And um, so, for example, spirituals, which the world loved, uh, came out of the singing of, of enslaved Africans who, though sorely, miserably oppressed, uh, had a hope. You think of motherless child, which is mostly about alienation. But it, then there's interspersed with it um, words of, of hope, true believer, and um, so forth. Others are more positive altogether. I'm on my way to Canaan, goes one one of the spirituals. And uh, Canaan is so prominent that the journey, hard as it is, takes on a, a meaning. So this music, and there were other kinds that came out of the slave experience, besides spirituals, uh, blues, ragtime, marching bands, in, particularly in funerals. You can't understand the evolution of jazz without understanding uh, some of that history. Hmm. And uh, I often tell friends that want to know what jazz is to study the history of slavery or to go and watch <laughs> chain gangs and how uh, they'll, they'll be singing. There's a great a movie based on a true story about Lead Belly, who was a legendary uh, blues singer, gospel singer, who was um, unjustly imprisoned. And um, he began to to play songs of stark reality, but always ending in, in some sort of hope to the point where white audiences, including uh, the governor of his state, hired him because they saw in it something that was much more positive than uh, the complaints that most prisoners make. So, long way of saying, uh, to understand jazz, one must understand uh, the oppression of, of slavery. Hmm. Yes, it's, a, it's a striking point that you make, that, again, a very scriptural point, that the Bible doesn't gloss over pain. And the, the great, uh, the great uh, insult of the prosperity gospel is you think, that how could anyone believe in a prosperity gospel when the Bible is so full of uh, suffering and yet rejoicing? And you, yeah. you, you describe numerous people who have suffered utterly unjustly in slavery, and yet they find, they find encouragement, profound encouragement in an eternal hope. And that is expressed in the beauty of music. And of course, one of the delightful things you you serve us with throughout the book is all of your footnotes have YouTube links, so we can actually listen. <laughs> you actually listen to the jolly tunes, which is an extraordinary. That's thing. right. Well, and if you have uh, the uh, Kindle version, you can you can do it just by pushing a button. The, <laughs> otherwise, it's it's a pain to look at look at the YouTube references, but they they're there because um, unless you hear this and put it in your soul, you can't sort of get it anyway and then there's a a a very small discography at the end for people who want who don't know much about jazz but want to be introduced to it and i try to you know cite recordings that really are important in 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 the history of jazz so yeah it's i hope i'm glad to hear that you picked that up because the the book by itself is just words (laughs) but um it's the sounds that count yeah, that's right. You and I have been 
sharing a couple of poems by email. And I was, as I was reading, you, you sent over a, a, a reference to a, a poet, a poem by Hausman. And as I read it aloud, it was that's when it started to make sense. The uh, the great the, the great poem. It reminds, oh, very good. I, my first degree was in classics, and when you they always say when you're actually. Uh, reading uh, Virgil, it doesn't make sense until you hear it aloud. And That's right. In that sense, I would propose to you yeah. that something of what you've done in this book is jazz, <clears throat> in that you are essentially exposing us to something and saying, what do you think? Because there is something extremely personal about hearing a piece of jazz, where you hear uh, my funny Valentine, and it. Uh, Miles himself said when I first, he said I didn't get it, I didn't get my funny yeah. Valentine until I. And then one day when I got it, when it meant something to me, then he played it differently. Yeah, that's very. That may be the highest compliment I've ever received, <laughs> because um, I I wanted the book to be both descriptive, but evocative, and um, so to think that there's maybe some music in the. In the text is uh, high praise for me. <laughs> well, that's it. I think you're, what you're doing throughout the text is you are you see. Look at this. Look at this. Look at this. But there's something very. There's also something rather fathering about that. I remember when I first discovered uh, classical music as a 15 year old and. <laughs> thinking I didn't know where to go next I was spending huge sums on Prokofiev which I later learned was a mistake I should have been listening to Mozart I needed someone to explain you should be listening to the listen to Bach first don't be spending all your money on these guys but yes it's very helpful this bibliography at the back because you're saying here here this is a good one you might like this this is a good one have a go see what you think now there's something there's something also uh, put it to you like this I I, I once asked uh, Tim Keller a question I asked him how is it that you grew that church in uh, in New, New York through personal evangelism? How do you do personal evangelism in in such a way that you don't come across just as a as a difficult salesman? And he said the importance of asking questions, the importance oh. of listening to your friend. And in that, yeah. you, you're, you're at no point do you say, right, you've got to you've got to get this. In jazz, it's we're all it's so subjective, so personal in that way. Yeah, and you can't be preachy about it. You can um, proclaim the beauties, but without a moralistic overtone. So, uh, yeah, that's true. That was a wonderful insight of Tim's and um, got to be true of life in general, that uh, it's an interplay between you and the environment and and the audience that you've been given. Um, And if you're not willing to listen, if you're just preaching, then you're missing much about life. Yes, this is it. I mean, even Edwards, he says, you know, I can describe, I can describe honey to you, you know, but until you've tasted it, yeah, I, I can only do so much. Yeah, good, good for him. I, I didn't know that quote, but uh, he obviously, because of his experience of revival, had to have uh, picked up all that was around him. In fact, any good minister of a church has to know the plight, uh, the ups and downs, the um, the victories, but also the trials of the people. Otherwise the sermons will just be, I've often, this is pretty naughty, but I've often thought, what if my brother who's not particularly an evangelical were sitting next to me in in a perfectly good church, he wouldn't be critical or negative about the sermon. He would simply ask, what planet is this guy from? 
And I think a lot of our preaching, I don't mean to be critical because that's it's one of, it's a noble question, but a lot of the preaching that you hear is um, from another planet, uses other language. It uses, uh, you know, conventions that don't connect with people. And you can't do that unless you uh, connect with them. Mm. This is it. This is it. I think it's delightful that you, often you see that, yeah, some of the most beautiful uh, and, and effective uh, preachers have been those who have who, who win their audience. They win them first. And yeah. there is something. There's something of beauty in this. There's something of beauty. Uh, someone who can tell a story. As I say, I frequently give tours in the British Museum, and I've often noticed the thousands of people milling around. Uh, literally, you'll have maybe twenty thousand people in the museum at any one time. But they're they're lost. They've got no one to tell them what these items mean. And so when I'm there telling a story. <laughs> people will crowd around and join in and listen. I love that. Yeah. We were at one museum with, I think he's a friend of yours, Ben Quash, and um, he was going over paintings that had images of black people, and uh, it was riveting. And suddenly you look around and there's a whole crowd listening because, you know, they wouldn't have known what to make of it without a guide. uh, So, um, yeah, we need guides in life, don't we? Yes, this is it. I heard someone said he was he had C.S. Lewis as his tutor at uh, at, uh, at Oxford. He wrote an essay about it, and he said when C.S. Lewis was your tutor, he wouldn't tell you, he wouldn't lord it over you. You would he would come alongside you, and together you would try to understand what the text meant. Yeah, There's, I was about to bring him up. He's a great example of that. When I was a brand new Christian, I read all of, I devoured Lewis, and I was rather. A disagreeable evangelist about him and I gave him around to friends and one of my friends said something very profound he said Lewis first makes friends with you and then persuades you oh, that's well that's magnificent and I think that's that's a high praise you know? that yeah. is, that's what you want isn't it I mean the, that seems so biblical <laughs> I know that's what Jesus did well, yeah this is it It's, a, it's exactly yeah, it's wonderful. Now, so I would like to introduce – can I open up a slightly different development, a new rabbit trail here? Sure, please. The subject of spontaneity has usually been associated with freedom, and yet spontaneity can become as much of a drudgery as the most staid liturgy. And I would propose to you that there is something in jazz, the most articulate musicians like an Oscar Peterson – or, uh, or John Coltrane, for example, the diligence, the diligence that they've applied to their, to their art is what facilitates actual freedom. Is this something you've considered much? Oh, I have thought about it a lot. And uh, you picked a couple of good examples. John Coltrane practiced for hours and hours a day. And um, when he was younger, Oscar was locked up into a room with a piano by his dad. And he said, you better learn your scales better than anybody else. And, uh, you know, when he plays, you, you don't you don't think it's pedantic or uh, that technique lords it over anything else. But it's all in his uh, DNA. It's all in his veins. Yeah, I mean, that's a profound point. You know, so-called free jazz, you listen to it a lot. It's not really free at all if they don't have a, a beat or a melody or a recognizable uh, gravity point. Um, you know, it starts and then it just goes in every which way. So that's not freedom. Mm. 
that's chaos. Um, nor is freedom being locked into um, patterns in a way that's mechanical. You know, as I said, I lived in France, and a lot of French people love jazz, and they're just wonderful. But some of the people I played with, uh, how to say this kindly, were mechanical about it. They counted the measures. They, they didn't hear it. Um, there's a technique that we use called trading fours, which means that uh, you and another musician, usually the drummer, play alone for four measures, and then the drummer plays for four minute mm. measures. And it's really fun to do that. It's a kind of a dialogue. And um, I remember playing with French people who, who didn't hear it in their hearts. They had to hear it in their heads with, with numbers mm. and it didn't come out well. Mm. Uh, so it's not just French people. It's anybody who's learning jazz from a, a different background. They, they're enslaved to the, the mechanics of it. So freedom is both truly spontaneous because it's within a framework uh, and not locked in to the framework in a way that is uh, is mechanical. Well, you see, these are gospel variables, aren't they? These are gospel gospel elements. You're, do- you're describing freedom. <laughs> that's, I suppose that's why that was what makes the book so interesting and makes the subject so interesting is that you're describing something which is based on uh, improv has improvisation at its very heart, has spontaneity at its very heart, but which requires extraordinary diligence and re- requires extraordinary boundaries. And you're thinking, what else besides the gospel uh, is it, it depends on this in such a <laughs> So the Christian life knows all about this. It's a fascinating uh, uh, com- uh, Absolutely. parallel. Absolutely. There's a, a great uh, verse in the book of Hebrews. Uh, he's, the author is saying, you should have become adults by now, but you're still children. And then he says, the way you become an adult, I'm paraphrasing, is to exercise the difference between right and wrong in the gymnasium of life. Wow. That's the Greek word, gymnasio. And um, that's so true that you you can't just develop maturity in the Christian life by sitting in an armchair and and reading devotional books. That that's a help, of course, but you've got to go out to the gymnasium of life and test it out and make mistakes, <laughs> as well as uh, you know discover that God's way ahead of you in every case. This is it, and this, again, it's fascinating. Again, that's uh, another subject you bring up in the book uh, a handful of times and, and powerfully is the element of risk in jazz you may go somewhere where the rest you may lose the band oh indeed and there's that fascinating element that's exactly right um and that happens when a really superb musician is playing with mediocre musicians the superb guy goes off and they don't follow him (laughs) uh i I remember as a as a kid watching pele play soccer we call it soccer football um and uh, when he retired he came and played for a new york team the Cosmos, who were very good. But he would set up plays, and they didn't get it. They didn't follow. They didn't see where the ball was going. Mm. And he was very gracious about it. But, you know, he was used to playing with a, a level of people that uh, could could support him. Well, that's the same in not only jazz, but all of life. Yes, um, yes, that's right. We, we see that again in the, the great heroes of, of church history. We see that again and again. These guys who, the, 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 I, I believe I must go, I must run. And you see, it's interesting, you, you, you tend to find forerunners like a Whitfield, 
but he'll have others around him. Uh, Thomas Kidd, in his biography of, of Whitfield, right. he makes the point that Whitfield wasn't only a wonderful example, but he was a network builder. And one of the, the, yeah. the greatest literature he left behind was letters. He's writing to people saying, come, let's go, let's go. And people, so people got up and ran with him, as it were. And there's that, uh, yeah, they, 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 there's something of relationship among these people. I don't think there's any great leader, be it a musician or a politician or a preacher, that is not somehow grounded in a network. Mm. Uh, you think of, I mean, you would know this better than I, but think of Wilberforce. Now, you think of him as somebody who was so creative, so courageous, fighting Parliament against slavery, and he, he did all that. But he, he, he had the Clapham group mm. that was uh, there to support him, pray for him, make suggestions. He had his friend John Newton tell him, you know, try this and try that. Um, so that that's true of jazz and any other um, form of life. Right. You, you need a network of people, which is also a biblical idea. You know, Jesus gave us the church. He didn't just say, okay, you're on your own, roll Amen. up your sleeves. That's right. That's right. Yeah. It is, isn't it interesting? Uh, you, you always see what comes from the gospel. You often see it's like the, the whole narr- the whole picture of the seeds going, which reproduce more seeds, which reproduce more seeds. I was fascinated to learn recently that there was a fellow called George Williams who used to live in, in London next to St. Paul's Cathedral. I learned recently that while he moved to London, he just, he found there were lots of nice young men around him, but they were prey to all kinds of temptations and trouble. Oh, yeah. And so this young man, George Williams, said, I'm going to set up a, an organization. I'm going to call it the Young Men's Christian Association. Now, from the YMCA, you get the Red Cross, you get basketball, you get extraordinary blessings. And you see, Christians have brought, Christianity has brought blessing, which has brought blessing which has brought blessing. And there's something about life in it. Now, what's interesting here is there's a little bit of a parallel. You're talking about, so for example, when Louis Armstrong sets up the All-Stars, he he has guys who all could be band leaders. And when Miles led bands, where Miles Davis led bands, where each of them would go on to become legends, and then he starts a new band, and each of those guys goes goes on to become a legend. It's fascinating, isn't it? It's totally fascinating. And... um... So 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 true to life. Uh, then the the downside is that when that um, wonderful traditionalism is gone, um, you you have only the vestiges of of good music or good things without that uh, life force, without the uh, iron pill uh, that are, is provided by uh, people who are conscious of um, starting institutions and 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 helping people to move on with life and uh that i mean that's sadly happened to the y in some ways mm. the c part is gone oh yeah certainly that's right but that was another thing in america yes yes it's very interesting how they, they, so many of these christian organizations begin the christian sets them up and then the, it gets handed off to the world and the christians carry on with preaching the gospel but then the world carries on with the hospitals the universities the schools the welfare state and so many things which were begun uh, through uh, by christians is a very interesting a very interesting point but also you you make the point in in the book and i think this is there's also a parallel here you make the make the point in the book that there was a there's a there's been a time when the what was begun as a new art form was then considered to be immediately was considered to be safe 
and and was was considered to be part of the establishment. And so Miles Miles Davis himself turns from the beauty of what he had begun into this much more experimental thing. And no one seems to continue. In it, 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 it seems to be rather than being a, a new art form, it's considered to be safe. Very good point. Um, I went to a university which started to, as a place to train ministers and. Because of that, they developed this liberal arts tradition that was equal to none. Today, the university does liberal arts, but they don't know why. And yeah. they're certainly not training ministers. Yeah. So it's it's kind of, uh, I mean, by common grace, it's doing some good things, but a lot of it is just surface. So you need to, you need to have that living tradition. Um, I was privileged to be a part of a jazz festival for years and years in Easton, Maryland, which is on the... Sure. And um, the leader of it is a fellow named Monty Alexander, who I mentioned in the book. Yes. And um, his gift is to bring younger, lesser known musicians, put them on the stage and let them learn from each other and particularly learn from him, of course. If you'd asked me 20 years ago, I would have said jazz doesn't have much of a future. After being in this festival, I, I would say, Jazz has a wonderful future because these young people are picking up the sense of it and they're moving ahead to the next stage. And um, it's really, it, it's a beautiful thing. They're, they're aware of the roots, but they want to move on. And um, hmm. that's that's biblical too, I think. Yeah, it's, it is. It's another of those parallels. Oh, this is outstanding! It's fa- fascinating to talk with you, Bill. But the book itself is such a is such a is such a feast. It's a it's a it's a great diversion for people who have been already interested in jazz. But it also would be a, a brilliant introduction to anyone who is interested in jazz. Both the it's unique, as I understand it, uh, as a, as an introduction, but also as a, as, a, as, a, as a a context in which you can reflect on the profound issues of this unique art form, in which we find spontaneity. We find, uh, we find improvisation, and yet we find the need for harmony, cooperation, leadership, structure. So we, thanks ever so much for, for talking with us about this, Bill. And thank you so much for writing this excellent book. Oh, thank you love. so much. For more episodes of the Christian Heritage London podcast and for information on Christian Heritage London events, tours and walks, please go to christianheritagelondon.org.